Yeah, come on up, guys. Pastor Jeff, you're up here, too. All five of us. <laughs> James in the middle. All right. All right. I'm in the middle. The middle man. All right, let's see here. Yeah, why don't you guys come on down? Let's let's bring it on in. Bring it on in. Let's hang out. It's called crowd control. Crowd control. Yes, Tammy, move up one row there. <laughs> Nice. Yes. All right, here we go. You're now in with, within spitting distance. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I, I found these two questions, and I think they, they kind of go hand in hand. The first one says, what about the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us as we forgive others. And the, and the law with that is, ex, explain why First John 1, 9 is not for believers. So if anybody wants to take a crack at the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive others. Well... One way you can look at it is in the Greek, you can actually translate um, the Lord's Prayer to read differently from the way it's been translated. Um, A Hebrew professor from Or Roberts University confirmed this to me. I wrote him a letter and he confirmed that it's correct. Um, An expert in, in Greek, actually, it's a Greek expert in Greek language. The Lord's Prayer could be translated because of the the way the Greek verbs are are worded like this. Oh, our father. <laughs> I started. I started to say the Lord is my shepherd. That's not the right one. Um, our father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You give us this day our daily bread and you forgive us of all our sins, even as we forgive others. You deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So the Lord's Prayer could be translated like when David prayed and said, You have crowned me with loving kindness. You have healed me. You, you know, a declaration of who the father is, because the subject of the prayer is the father. 
Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. You give us our daily bread and you forgive us our sins, even as we forgive others. You deliver us from evil. See, you're not asking God, please don't lead me in temptation, but deliver me from evil. But you do not lead me in temptation, but into temptation, but you deliver evil for yours. The ending for yours is the kingdom and yours is the power. and Yours is the glory. So you can check that out. But in the original Greek, the Lord's prayer could be translated like that. That's why I believe the disciples said, teach us to pray the way you pray. After he said that, because he prayed like David prayed, he prayed affirming who the father was. Your kingdom, your glory, you do this to us, you do this for us, you provide us with food, you forgive us our sins. And, and um, so anyway, so that's one way you can look at it. Another way you can look at it, if you want to leave it the way it's translated, some people have said, and I think it's accurate, is that a lot of things that Jesus taught was pre-cross, before the resurrection, before the new covenant. For instance, when people would, when Jesus would heal people, he would say, Go and take a sacrifice to the priest as a testimony. Well, when people get healed now, we don't do that because even though that was a commandment of the Lord to go do that, we don't do it now because it's a new covenant and we don't have the old temple and the priests and the sacrifices and so forth. He said, do as the Pharisees say, but don't do as they do. They sit in Moses' seat now. In other words, they have the authority of the old covenant right now. So that a lot of things Jesus told, taught and they did was under the authority of Moses. See? So that's another way you can look at it, he, that he was talking pre-cross. And, and, in, and another way of, of uh, bringing the people to the end of themselves and saying, um, forgive us. As we forgive those who have sinned against us, there's nobody, there's nobody who has, in other words, putting a condition on forgiveness as long as we forgive other people. Then you see the New Covenant, Paul writing, and Paul says that we are to forgive one another as Christ has already forgiven us. So Paul reverses it. Remember now, Paul was commissioned by Jesus to explain his gospel. So here's Paul explaining the gospel of Jesus, commissioned, commissioned by Jesus himself to explain it. And Paul says we are to forgive each other because we are, we are already forgiven through Christ. So the new covenant mentality is we forgive because we have already been forgiven. Now, what if we don't forgive as a new, new covenant believer? That just means you're walking after the flesh. You know, envy, strife, unforgiveness, all that is just flesh. It doesn't change who you are in the spirit because of what Christ has already done. Christ has forgiven us. Now we are to be as Christ to others, loving through the through the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, forgiveness, mercy, all those things. So don't get sidetracked by that little thing, that little verse in the Lord's Prayer, because you can look at it two ways. Either the original Greek could be reworded to make it an affirmation of who the father is, which is just a declaration that he forgives our sins. Um and the, the last part, even as we forgive others, is just a kind of a follow up that because God does this for us, we're going to forgive others. But there's no condition there. Or you can look at the Lord's Prayer as it, as it has been commonly interpreted and just see it. As, uh, some of those things in there are pre-Christ and before the resurrection. Look at the Apostle Paul's explanation of forgiveness. And clearly, 
our forgiveness in Christ is not conditional upon our behavior, whether we forgive or not forgive, whether we have envy or strife, whether we do anything after the flesh doesn't change what has happened in the spirit. It's always in the past tense, too, after the cross, always spoken of in the past tense. It's already happened. Yes. And also, it's interesting that the the so-called Lord's Prayer was, as far as we know, was never repeated by the apostles in in the letters of the apostles in the book of Acts. You never see the Lord's Prayer being repeated um, in that form by the apostles in any of their writings ever again, because it was it was something for that time. That he was teaching them. And so with the work having been done, sin has been done away with. We forgive now because we have already been forgiven by Christ. Past tense. The, uh, the, notion, the notion that we're to pray that prayer uh, just comes from the tradition of people repeating it. I mean, think about it. gave us that. The Roman Catholic Church gave us that. So there's, there's something there, too. So if, if you say... Uh, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, we know that that prayer has been answered. You don't continue to pray your kingdom come because his will has been done. When we believe on the son, we have done the will of the father. And the same with forgiveness of sins. Uh, so it's I to quote that line, right? I didn't quote that line. That, that's really, that kingdom come, that will be done. I think you did. I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really that's cool. I said thy and you said your. I had it right and you had it. You know, like the modern, the modern. I'd use the version that Jesus used. And now, was there a First John one nine follow up on that? Yes. There it goes. Is it working? Um, I, th- I think like with the first John one nine thing, I think it's real interesting. Uh, this is not the complete validation for that, but also to look at all the rest of the scriptures and Paul particularly who gave the revelation of the new covenant to us. That's never anything he covered. He, what he said was just what James was saying when it came with regard to sins was ours was forgive others as you have already been forgiven. The thing with 1 John 1, 9 is also to understand the audience relevance and who he was speaking to there. And what John was writing into was dealing with some error and some correction of things brought on by the Gnostics that were among them. And one of the things that the Gnostics, or two typical things that the Gnostics held to was, number one, they believed that all flesh was evil, so they denied Jesus coming in the flesh. And so that's why you'll see in 1 John 1, 9, he references so often Jesus coming and being embodied in the flesh. The other thing that the Gnostics held to was that they believed that all spirit was inerrantly good. And so thus you find him where he said, uh, if we'll confess our sins, God's faithful and just to, conv- to uh, forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because he says, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. Well, that's exactly what those Gnostics were teaching and that had infiltrated among there. That's what he dealt with when he dealt with that spirit of Antichrist that was among them. It was pro-God, but it was Antichrist, if you will. It denied the work of the cross. And the word homologio there, or the word confess, is a word homologio. It comes from the word homo, meaning same, legio, word. It means to say the same word or to come into agreement with. Even with the confession of sin, he wasn't saying, well, before you get saved, or in other words, to get saved, 
saying you've got to call out every one of your sins. What he was saying was you come into agreement with the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Consequently, what God will do is forgive you in salvation and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And we can see again through the Scriptures that the cleansing of unrighteousness is not an ongoing thing where you kind of have to keep taking a bath and get cleaned up. It is a one-time work God did. And when we receive salvation, even in the book of Acts, he said, receive this wonderful salvation. We receive an inheritance and the forgiveness of sins. It's like the whole package deal, so it's one-time deal. And I said, I know it's one of those things that becomes, like we were talking, one of the sacred cows. And people go, you can't take the confession of sin because we have to do that every night before we go to bed or whenever, which I never quite understood because everybody confesses them right before you go to bed. And the only time you're right with God, I guess you're asleep. But, but nonetheless, when we understand, I think, the context of who he was dealing with and the correction that he was bringing of the gospel to this teaching that had infiltrated among that group of believers there to clarify to them, listen, if you say you're without sin, who's he talking to? Those Gnostics that were telling them you're inherently good. In other words, there's really no need for the Savior in the sense that you're saying. But he said, if you agree with the fact that I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, God's faithful and just. And he'll forgive you one time. It covers it all. You receive that work of the cross and it cleanses you from all unrighteousness one time. So the audience was not the believers there. It was that whole group and a general declaration to the world. As somebody once joked, he said, would have made a good Billy Graham sermon. You just sort of tell the whole world you're all sinners and you need a savior. Come on down kind of thing. So it was that response to that. You know, uh, just on a practical level. If you interpret that First John one nine is for the believer, um, I hate to say it just like this, but it doesn't work. Yeah. And unless you call working just constantly being out of sorts with God, because I think it was Martin Luther said, you know, he he would spend hours confessing his sins, and by the time he had crawled back to his little little one room, uh, you know quarters that he stayed in at the monastery he had already committed so many more sins he had to go right back so it it just flat out doesn't work and and it and it shouldn't work because that's not really what it means is this constant uh confess and repent and just i would just say just briefly add to that that the theologians are not being honest when they interpret first john 1 9 as the way they're they're teaching it because they add to the text Something that's not in there. For instance, the text says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, they say, well, he's not really talking about sin and righteousness. He's talking about your fellowship with God. So they 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 twist the scripture there to make it a broken fellowship issue and not a loss of salvation issue, because the text does. But the text doesn't say that the text says forgiveness of sin and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Well, that's what the text says. But they add this. They think they say this implied thinking that it's really talking about a broken fellowship issue. Uh, So that's not honest to the text. And not only that, when you read first John eight above it and ten below it, you see who John is describing as this verse belonging to. He says this is someone who says he has no sin or has not sinned. And then he calls this, he describes this person. He said, this person is deceived. They have not the truth in them. They have not the word in them. And they're calling God a liar. 
That's a clear description of an unregenerated person, an unbeliever. The word is not in them. Truth is not in them. They're calling God a liar. And they are. What's the fourth one? And they're deceived and they're deceived. Okay, so he's describing an unbeliever there. It's not a matter of breaking fellowship with God as the theologians are trying to add to the text. No, it's clearly what the text says. An unregenerated person needs to agree with God that he's a sinner and God is faithful and just to forgive their sin, cleanse them all in righteousness. And they'll no longer be deceived without the word in them, without the truth in them and calling God a liar. Also, the phrase calling God a liar is the same phrase John uses in chapter five of the same letter when he says he who denies the son. Chapter five, first John, he who denies the son is calling God a liar. So it's clearly the phrase calling God a liar is a reference to an unbeliever. John would never say, my little children, quit calling God a liar. He never refers to the believers calling God a liar. So this is clearly a reference to an unregenerated person who is calling God a liar. Why a liar? Because he's saying, I have no sin. I have no sin. I have not sinned. I have no sin. I don't need a savior. The Gnostics were doing that. They were saying if you had a higher knowledge, this higher spiritual, mysterious knowledge, you could have a fellowship with God and you don't need a savior. That's what he was. That's what he was addressing. So it's just really clear when you see it. And, and the church has been hung up on this first John one nine for so long. And then you got to think about this. Theologians tell you all the time is don't build your doctrine on one verse. Well, guess what? That's the only verse in the entire New Testament. In the entire New Testament, Peter never once says, if you don't confess your sins, you're not going to be forgiven. John, uh, this the one verse that everybody uses, which is not what it's saying. First John one nine and Paul, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, Paul talked about everything, everything. I mean, he even talked about hair length. He mentions hair length. He talks about everything. If this was true, if this was really true. That you have to name your sins, confess your sins as a believer to stay in fellowship with God, as theologians would like you to believe, like keep short accounts with God, keep confessed sins up to date. If that was true, fellowship with God is what it's all about. I mean, that's the essence of what we're, we're called into the fellowship of the father and the son. That's how fruit is born. That's how life is given. That's, that's everything. You think the apostle Paul would leave out of all his letters one mention, not one mention that you need to confess your sins to stay forgiven or cleansed? Not one time. Especially the, the Corinthians, the wild Corinthians. I mean, not once in the Corinthian letter does he tell them you need to confess your sins. So, so yeah, it's called them saints and reminded them who they were. And anyway, so if you just look at it and let the Spirit open your eyes to this, we'll see how we've been really hoodwinked. And theologians, and I'm telling you, this is the linchpin. This first John one nine is the linchpin. A linchpin is a pin that went in to hold wheels, the wheels together. You pull that pin out and the wheels all come off. The, the wheels come off of legalism when you remove first John one nine. It's a huge linchpin. They will fight to the death to keep it in. Religion will. And you pull it out and the whole thing begins to unravel and they know it. But, but, but people are seeing this more and more. Oh, one more little hole that's in that um, is the timing. Uh, the epistle, John's epistles were written around A.D. 90. And so that means the church went about 60 years without having any teach, any scriptural uh, instruction or, or admonishment from the apostles to ask for forgiveness, to that's confess awesome. your sins. Yeah. And so we got 60 years of believers that, that out are of out of fellowship with God. Yeah. So. Well, even if you go to chapter two, 
and First John, it says, My dear children, I write to you because your sins are forgiven. His whole tone changes. So he was dealing with the agnostics here, and then he's dealing with the believers whose sins are forgiven. It's like a preamble, like the Gospel of John, the first chapter one of the Gospel of John, is kind of a preamble where he's declaring the deity of Christ. And First John is a, is a lot the same way. He's, de, he's dealing with issues in the church and making a declaration. And then chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children. And then it gets personal. Yeah, that's exactly right. You, Can I have one quick thing to that? Yeah. Oh, I, I know I already said something. But this, this is something that helped me because I took it where Noel went with it to help me because I could see that. But what if we go the other way? I mean, if we're going to do this and we're going to confess... God is faithful and he's a just God. So he cannot sweep any sin under the rug. And if sin, uh, Hebrews 2 particularly hit me where it said that every transgression and every disobedience, that includes every single one, must receive a just recompense. In other words, it must receive the payment that justice requires. So if the only way for me to apply the payment that salvation bought me was for me to confess that sin, then I would have to be sure I covered every single one. Now, it's not this blanket thing. So what about the mark miss that I did that I did not even know was a mark miss? And I mean, I know this may sound a little odd, but you take it, you've got to go that way with it if you're going to go. I probably missed the mark 15 years ago, and I didn't know I did. But if the only way to get that off of the account and re- apply the just recompense was my confession of that sin before God, then it's been on the account the whole long, and all it takes is one sin. So it's not a matter of even if I'm trying to confess them all. I've left something tainted on that account, and it just puts it back in our lap, and it becomes a work of legalism that just wears you out. So even if you want to go that way, then, then go at it hard, and you realize that it's not only that it's, it's not scriptural, it's literally impossible if you even believed it. You just can't do it. Unworkable. Well, we sang this morning, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Our Confession. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. One time. One time. And then where did he go? He went and sat down. Because one time was enough. Amen? All right, moving on. If you could make one change to the way the church is today, what would it be? Religion. (laughs) Yep, get rid of it. That sums it all up, doesn't it? I mean, when you get free from religion, you, uh, I think I was telling James or somebody, once you get that total forgiveness, you quit. You know, if you believe God's up there counting your sins against you, it makes you into this person that's counting other people's sins. And I think that's how the Pharisees viewed God was the great Pharisee in the sky. But once you get a, a proper view of, of who God is, and like James says, you become that reflection. And then, you know, and just the, just the, really the horrible teaching that are, that's in a lot of churches that are just, I, I just, I meet a lot of people that are just, and I'm sure you guys too, that are just been beat up by religion and, and got this, and it kind of, to be honest, it angers me to, to have my friends and people I care about that have been hurt by a false ideal of what and who God is. So I, I just wish that could be removed. The whole That's why we're doing this whole God's not angry thing. Because there's there's been this teaching that if you don't confess your sins, if you you got to do this, this, and this. 
And it is God provided it all. And I just I wish there would be an awakening to our, our identity. And it is happening, folks, to be honest. It's it's there's a wave of grace just sweeping our nation right now. And uh, I just, you know, I think if we would just awaken to our identity and our righteousness, we could do away with half of the books in the Christian bookstore. You don't need all that that stuff telling you how to do this, how to how to minister, how to get how to grow a church. Who cares? We are the righteousness of God. So that's how I feel about it. (laughs) I am. Well, I'm I'm just blessed listening to to Wesley talking. Um, I think we're probably all going to say pretty much the same thing. And it's going to center around the the, the gospel as a a very narrowly defined uh, gospel. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Because that one thing, and folks, you know, I'm getting to be where I'm. A lot of times, I'm the oldest guy in the room, so I've been around the church thing, and I've seen a lot of stuff, and I've experienced a lot of stuff. I persecuted God's people while I was a pastor. I did it all. I mean, I, I it, but, and so we've we've through the years have had a lot of ideas about here's what the church needs. We, I remember years ago we were on a kick. Well, we need discipleship. Well, sure. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue against the word discipleship, no matter what crazy ideas we may have had about it. But um, And then we were on some kick about elders. The church needs elders. The, the church government's wrong. That's what's wrong with the church. And we, we went through phases where it's this, that, and, you know, we, we think we can fix the church. And, and uh, beside the, the arrogance of that... Um, we were missing it a million miles because the one thing I think I can say that I've seen for maybe 17, 18 years now is that there's one thing that changes everything, and that is the message, the right message. When the right message is preached, that's – see, we um, we tend to think here, – here's my old natural thinking. Oh, that preacher, I heard him preach, you know, he – he sure did, his theology was off, but he sure has a good heart. You have you heard that? They're, they they just they 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 preach absolute heresy, but his heart's good. <laughs> and I was reading the other day about Paul, and I realized Paul had the opposite view. He said, "I'm not going to judge. I don't care if your judgment of me." And he's talking about motives because he went on to in, uh, in I think First Corinthians four he says. I, I don't care if I'm judged by any man. As a matter of fact, I don't even judge myself. So when the Lord comes, He'll reveal the intents and the motives of each man's heart. And wait till the Lord comes, He says. Wait till the Lord comes, who will reveal the intents of intentions of every man's heart. And then every man will receive his praise from God. And Paul said, these guys are out there, guys with bad motives. Uh, preaching the gospel. I don't care. I don't care what their motive is. Some of them were in it for the money. Can you imagine this? We say the opposite. We say like, well, you know, I don't care what they say, boy, he's out in it for the money. And we write them off. Paul's the opposite. As long as they're preaching the gospel, because there's only one thing that gives power to make you safe 
and sound and to give you salvation. Only one thing, and that's the gospel. Not an alternate version, but the gospel. That gospel will make you safe. And whatever the motive is, Paul just left that alone. I don't care what the motive is. So if there's one thing that that I would, if I could change, just uh, you know, is um, to get the message right. And I don't care if it's a high church, and a, I don't care if it's the Catholic church or whatever. I don't care if it's the uh, Kingdom Hall of Jehovah Wickedness. I, it would just <laughs> You know, if the gospel is preached, then you either believe it or you don't. And that will change everything. Like we have this phrase, this changes everything. Changes everything. So that's my two cents. I think, Noel, I heard you say the gospel fixes everything, too, when it's preached. I mean, there's no need. Yeah. Didn't you, sir, you said that? Our dear friend. Fixes everything. This might go right along with it. It says, how do you feel millennials view the church today? Are you, What's a millennial? millennial? I'm just, uh, <laughs> well, I got an uncle up in Illinois who, who's a pastor, and he was asking me what, it, what I thought it would take to get you know, the younger generation in the church, and I, I just told him the right message. I mean, the, my generation and the generation behind me, um, they're not going to stand for legalism. They're, they want no part of it. It's going to take the superhero that Jesus is. you got to let people know that he's a superhero and that he just loves them unconditional where they're at. And they're just not going to have it. I think history bears that out, too. Um, uh, like some of you, I was a product of the Jesus movement that happened in the 70s and the late 60s, 70s. And on the East Coast, Orlando, where I was from, it, it really swept through that area. And it was, you know, hippies, basically. You ever, anyone know what hippies are? You know, just <laughs> and uh, but they came to a church we had called the Rock House. Um, the Lord is my rock was the thing. And and the pastor was about as square as <laughs> Alex Klattenberg was about as and, and just very he, yeah he even he even pressed his jeans you know he tried to wear jeans so he used to wear jeans to relate to the youth so he had them starched and pressed you know <laughs> but they were attracted to the love and the unconditional acceptance same thing on the west coast with Costa Mesa and uh, Pastor Chuck Smith a lot of it happened around there it was just it was more of a uh, old-fashioned church, but they sensed the love of God and were drawn to that. And I, I don't think that's changed. And the more we learn to love like Jesus, the more we receive the love of Jesus, the more we can love like him. And that's very attractive, I think, to any generation. Well, if you read the scripture, it says sinners and tax collectors drew near. So when you're preaching the love message and the gospel of grace, People will draw near to that of all all walks of life, and and that's that's all you got to do is just tell the truth, preach grace. Yeah. 
making a list. Okay, I'm gonna. I can't read all this, but Noel brought up the mystery that the rulers of the age knew. If if they knew, they would not have crucified Jesus. Can any or all of you expound further on what the mystery is? But Noel brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, brought, I did my part. That sounded like a Jesus. <laughs> I didn't get to this part. I forgot to say this, but um, I was telling my testimony. I left it in the bar. I didn't I didn't go to the next step. <laughs> but what happened was God really spoke to me and said, study what the mystery of Christ is. That's how it started for me. The whole revelation after 10 years of burnout, the spirit spoke and said, study what the mystery of Christ is. That's why that word means a lot to me, because that's where it all started for me. And so. I started looking into what the word mystery means in the Greek, what Paul meant. He says it many times, and I've never even noticed it in Scripture, but it's all through the Scripture where Paul refers to the mystery of Christ or the secret that was hidden in God. So I looked looked into it and um, started. Uh, first, I went to some commentaries trying to find out what it was, and the Spirit kept saying, no, that's not it, no, that's not it, no, that's not it. So I just put them all away, and I was just like, God, show me what the what the hidden truth was. But make a long story short, basically... The hidden truth is, is something that was not revealed, the scripture says. It was not revealed to the sons of men until Jesus came. So it was not revealed in the days of Moses. It was not revealed before Jesus came. And so the mystery of, the mystery of Christ is, the word mystery in the Greek just means hidden truth. So the hidden truth of Christ is in essence the gospel itself, which is that God would come as a man and that his death would be the death of all men and that his resurrection would be the life of all men who would believe a totally unprecedented thing that no one even dreamed would ever happen. That God would remove sin in a day, cease counting sins against man and give man union with himself. It's all that's all the mystery of Christ. It has to do with his his incarnation, his death, burial, resurrection and ascension. The mystery or the hidden truth of Christ, who he is and what he did and why he did what he did. The meaning of what he did is all the mystery of Christ, not revealed until he came. I think I heard you say one time, um, James, that C.S. Lewis called an awesome glimpse of that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, that the father, it was, you know, from the foundation before the foundation of the world, it was already settled that Jesus was going to do. So the the father and the son already had this plan that the perfect one would come along and that, you know, be raised from the dead and the grave couldn't hold him. That's just awesome. Did that, did that answer the question? That was pretty, pretty thorough. Actually, this this is what I was just Paul said, and this I think is really important. Um, Paul says the the um, the riches of the mystery, the riches of the mystery is Christ in you, but the mystery itself is not Christ in you. So just be just see the distinction there because the rich he says the riches. Paul says the riches of the glory of this mystery, the mystery of Christ, is Christ in you. But the mystery itself is Christ himself 
in the Father. See, so the mystery is Christ hidden in the Father, not revealed until the fullness of time. But the riches or the value of that mystery is now that Christ who is hidden in the Father is now hidden in you. See the difference? And it's important to see that the mystery is not Christ in you because that makes you the center of all things. Christ in you is not the mystery. Christ in the Father is the mystery. Now revealed. And now the revelation of that mystery, the riches of that mystery is now Christ is inside of me. Awesome. If the cross was the judgment of sin, why is Jesus coming back to judge the unbelievers? Why is he returning with wrath? I think, and, and, and I'm going to, as, as James said, you know, I think that's something you covered uh, this morning, really, that the, the, the deal was when we uh, realized that there's only one unpardonable sin. And I love that because I used to think people said, man, if somebody spoke in tongues and you said that was the devil, you're going to hell. I mean, you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And I thought, good gracious, man, this thing's pretty easy to screw up, isn't it? Or, or mess up, sorry. Um, but when we realize that to blaspheme the work of the Holy Spirit, and if his work is to come, he said he came to convict and to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the sin was of the world because they did not believe. His conviction for us is righteousness, to not convince us we're sinners or convict us of our sin, but of righteousness. So the conviction of sin with regard to the world is that they did not believe, and it is the one thing that is unpardonable. All of the sins of humanity have been removed. They've been dealt with in Christ, if we'll receive that gift. So when he comes back, he doesn't say, well, my gosh, you know, you cussed 438 times, uh, you know, and you lied 7,264 times. He comes back and he says, did you believe on me? Otherwise, we are enacted and stand in our own stead if we reject the sacrifice of Christ. If we trample, when Hebrews talked about trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus. See, for them to go back to the old covenant, they would have to walk back over the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ to go back under the the sacrifice of bulls and goats. And so there remains no more sacrifice for sin. So when we stand there to reject the sacrifice of Christ is that unpardonable sin. So therefore... We stand in our own stead and receive the judgment according to our own, not works, but our own faith, whether we received or, or rejected Christ. And if we reject his sacrifice, then all of the sins, we, we're, they're on us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Paul said, you know, remember, Paul said, if Christ be not risen, you are still in your sins. Remember what Paul said that he said, if Christ be not risen. You're still in your sins and we are of all people most miserable. Well, the truth is he is risen and therefore you're not in your sins. Same way, if a believer doesn't put his faith in Jesus, he dies in his sins. Jesus said very clearly, if you believe who I am, you will not die in your sins. But if you don't believe who I am, you will die in your sins. So the question is why? It's because we think that God has forgiven us. Just because he loves us. That's not true. God loves us. Yes. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. But the only way God, a just God, can forgive you and I is if judgment comes to sin. The only way God can forgive is if the blood of Christ takes the sin away. 
And that only happens individually when we believe. So because a person puts their trust or their faith in Jesus, then a just God who loves us and gave his son for us can forgive us. But to say that he he just loves everybody and he forgives everybody is to devalue the blood of Christ. It is to throw the very character of God away because his foundations of his throne is righteousness and justice. And so without the blood of Christ, no man can enter heaven. So it's not just because he loves us. It's not this universalism that's starting to spread in some grace churches, this universalism, this inclusionism. It comes by two different words, universalism, inclusionism that says, you know, everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not. It's a lie. It's a lie of the devil, because Jesus was very clear that if you do not believe in him, there is no hope. And only through his blood can someone enter into the heavens because sin must be judged. So you either choose to take your appointment with death, like Noel talked about. You either take you either let Jesus take your appointment with death or you're going to take your own appointment with death and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, before the judgment seat of God. And so that's that's just the scripture. And that's why, you know, that's why Paul was so adamant to reach his brothers his Jewish brothers, because he said, I can all, I wish myself accursed if they could just see this and believe because he knows without Christ, there's no hope. So anyway, just it doesn't mean God doesn't love the world. He weeps. He wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. I would have gathered you together, but you would not. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He's he's the perfect picture of the father. He's the father weeping over Jerusalem because he would have, but they would not. You know, so the Lord weeps for those who reject him and those who go their own way. Those who feel like they can do it on their own. Those who think they don't need God. But their end is destruction. And that's that's they will perish. The scripture says. And so that's the truth. And we must stand firm with that truth. And that reality doesn't change who God is. It just shows how. How important the blood of Christ is. And remember, um, uh, just a real short little thing that uh, Jesus said. When, when the Son of Man returns, the judgment is not on sins as in sins committed. The judgment is on faith. Yes. Jesus said, uh, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find faith? Or when the Son of Man ret- returns, will he find faith in the earth? That's what he's looking for. And uh, one other short little thing Jesus said was, uh, if you believe in me, you're saved. If you don't believe in me, you're condemned already. That's right. Period. So, that, so that's the same thing as saying, when I come, will I find faith? Do you, do you believe or not? And if you haven't believed, you're left uh, in your sins because you didn't enter in. Um, in by faith into Christ, which is the only place where sins are not counted. So that's the, in my, my simple mind, that's the short answer. If, if you believe, you're saved. If you don't, you're condemned already. And, if I could say one thing real brief. and I know in your minds you're probably thinking, well, what about the guy in Africa who never heard the gospel or the guy in India who never heard the gospel? And you're wondering, like, how can that be fair? Just remember this, that the very fact that you're asking that question means that a little piece of God's justice and fairness is in you. And you're asking a question because you want it to be fair. Now, think about God. 
who is a gazillion times more than that feeling we have of it needs to be fair. He is the master of fairness and justice and mercy and goodness. Okay, so what we need to remember is that God knows what he's doing. Also, remember that one day a man asked Jesus, Peter asked Jesus, what about this man? Last chapter of John. What about this man? Just like we say, what about the man in Africa? What about the man in India? And Jesus answered him and he said, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. So what Jesus is saying that to each one of us, don't worry about these questions about what about all these other people? We need to take care of ourselves in terms of what do we believe? Are we following Jesus? Trust him to do what is right. Will he not do what is right? Our sense of rightness and fairness is a billion times magnified in the heart of God. Of course, he will do what is right. And I think we're going to be shocked to find out there'll be some people who will reject Jesus because they can't figure it all out. They'll reject him because they say it's not fair. I'm not going to follow a God that's going to send all these people in India to hell. I'm not going to follow him because they didn't trust his goodness. And they're going to find out when they walk over and step over to the other realm, they're going to see something. Oh, my God. He was fair. He was, oh, my God. And I missed out because I didn't follow Jesus myself. I had to have these answers about all these other people. And I rejected him because I didn't have all the answers I wanted. See, be careful of that. Jesus said very clearly, what is that to you? I'm God. You're not God. What is that to you? You follow me. Who knows? Who knows? At the moment of death. That every person gets a revelation of Christ and they have a choice. Who knows? Only God knows. He can do anything. Who knows that at the moment of death, where there is no time and no space, that he reveals himself and the heart has a chance to receive or reject him? Who knows? So you're going to bank your entire eternity on on a question you can't answer. And one day you'll find out how he did it. and You'll go, oh, my God, he did give everybody a chance. And I blew it. Wow. That's awesome. All right. This question says, how can I be saved and still be fearful? Example, fear of flying, going on a boat, fear of dogs, intimidated by people. How can... I become bold as a lion in a good way. How can I be less focused on me? And how can Jesus be real and huge? Wow, that's awesome. That's a great question. That's great. Um, this is more of an example because that, that's, an, that's an awesome question. And the reason we say stuff like that is like, Lord, how do you answer that? But it's what... We've been taught oftentimes in life is to, if it's fear or if it's anything else, to face the fear. And so we try to face that thing. We try to overcome it. And what I really want to share with them, I was talking, we were talking in the restaurant uh, last night. And the Lord gave me a kind of a picture of this from an illustration from when I was a kid. And maybe this will help a little bit. Because what we need to see is not trying to figure out how to overcome our fears. Because the fear is a product of something that's absent in that moment in our heart and in our faith. When I was a kid, when I was growing up, we'd go to Myrtle Beach on vacation. And I used to tell people I loved to swim, but I really wouldn't call it that because I was terrified of the water. 
And what I was terrified of was not anything except going underwater. And I don't know if you've ever gone underwater, taken a deep breath. It doesn't work good. We are not made to breathe underwater. So what I would do was I would get in the swimming pool on the shallow end, and I'd never go over my head, and I would never break away from the side. I'd just edge down the side back and forth, just rubbing my toes on the edge of the pool, holding on to the side as a little kid, and I'd never go down deep. My mom used to try to get me out of the pool, and she'd laugh because I'd say, Stop messing up all my swimming time. I was not swimming. Because I was afraid of going under the water. Now, here's what would happen, and here's what I learned. My dad would get in the pool, and he'd step out in the water that was well over my head, but it was not over his head. And I would get on the edge of the pool on the outside and come running and leap out over all of that water and jump in my dad's arms. And I'd do it over and over and over again. And people would say, finally, you overcame your fear of the water. I said, no, I did not. I trusted my daddy and I knew he loved me. And what happened was the revelation and realization of perfect love cast out fear. So what I don't need to do is try to figure out how to face my fears or overcome my fear of flying or anything. What I need to see is my daddy. I need to see my heavenly father. I need to see Christ in me. I need to see the one who has got me and loves me so that in whatever situation it is, it's not that I overcome that situation. I see his love and I trust that. And it just casts aside the fear. So that thing goes in the presence and the realization of the love that he has for us. David, hold on a second. Um, uh, Just walking that out in a practical way for for whoever wrote the question. um, Let's say they are encountering a difficult situation and they feel fear starting to creep into their life, you know, and, and it's starting to freeze them up. What would you recommend they do, practically speaking? I, I think it just gets back I, because sometimes it's, again, it's, and I understand the question is what do we do, but it really gets back to what am I seeing? And what am I being aware of? So what in that moment, instead of me saying, I've got to overcome my fear of this, because we were, I don't know if any of y'all have heard that. We've, it's sort of a colloquialism or an old adage, just face your fears. And I've never found that anywhere in the scripture. Because fear is a result of not realizing that I'm loved, really. And it's not that I'm not loved, but when I don't realize that. So in a practical sense for that, whatever it may be, I don't know if it's flying or job interview or something. Uh, maybe you got a bad report from the doctor and it just sort of shakes us or we get upset about something. So how do I deal with that? To me, it's not to... Because it's hard to ignore those things. And the scriptures, nowhere in the scripture does it say, don't think about this. It says, think on these things. Set your affections on Christ. It doesn't say don't look at all of these other things. It just says set your affections on Christ. So in that moment, I pray, Holy Spirit, I need to see Jesus. I need to see my living Savior. All of this, and I believe in sound doctrine. I'm not making fun of that, but all of the doctrines of grace and the work of the cross and everything. What I need to see is the realization of all that that brings me, which is a living relationship with my Heavenly Father. So I need, by the eyes of the Spirit, and only, how does the Holy Spirit do that? I don't know. That's why He's the Holy Spirit and we're not. But He can give us that revelation and that realization that we have a Heavenly Father who's present. And to get, one thing that even earlier when they said, what do you think one of the greatest needs in the church is, for me is for us to come to a realization that we're loved. Because in the context of that, grace makes sense. The cross makes sense. Everything was because God so loved. So to see His love is what I need, and the Holy Spirit show me that. And then the fear does not have that grip and foothold because I realize that fear is really because I feel out of control. And the cool thing is, is that I got good news. We're out of control. 
We don't have control. But it doesn't mean no one is in control. So what I need to see is the one who is in control. And so I don't have to try to manage my life, manage my fear, manage those situations. When I realize Christ holds me, my Heavenly Father holds me, and I can just leap off the edge of the pool when I see Him because He never drops us. And in fact, we're already in His embrace being held. So I don't know if that answered that question or not. but I think so. I have a recommendation. Um, I really feel for whoever asked that question because... Maybe we all do because we all have had fears, you know, of various things. I think that if you're in this fellowship or you're in, uh, you know, you, you, there are different fellowships that have come together or folks from different fellowships. I think a lot of those fears will fall away. Sometimes we're not delivered immediately of, of anything of, or of any particular thing, but they fall away. And the more you hear the reality of who you are, you'll wake up one day and those fears will really, really be gone. And I would, if I lived around here, I would make sure I was listening to these guys and and, uh, Wes and Jenny and Jeff and Margie. And and really, I think I mentioned this uh, earlier, in in a fellowship, every one of the saints will be able to encourage you. And you'll be able to encourage yourself. Just listen to them, and don't like yeah. Don't try to face your fears. Behold him. Yeah. Behold him more, and don't worry about it because somebody will come along and tell you that well those fears now they're sins because it's a sin to fear, and so you'll have another piece of baggage you got to deal with. So don't don't listen to that. <laughs> yeah. But to, but to go along with what Noel's saying is is I'm I hope you guys are being picky. About who you're listening to and, and and the speakers that you're hearing out there. That's real important. When we get together in, in a fellowship like this where we all encourage one, one another, that's what Paul was all about. His ministry was just to encourage the saints and who they really are. And uh, along with what Noel said earlier about music even. I mean, there, there's a song I like on the radio, but I got to listening to the words. And they were they were they had me asking for something that I already had in Christ. And I was like, this. No, I'm not going to sing those lyrics anymore. I I almost want to tell you the name of the song, but I'm going to. All right. That song, Oceans, beautiful song. But she's saying, spirit, take me where my feet can never go. And I and and I was singing that and, and I meant it with my heart. But then I got to thinking, Jesus has has took me. Into the heavenly realms where my feet could have never gone. I'm seated in a heavenly place with him. It's done. I don't have to sing a song begging him to do it for me. It's already happened. And while you were speaking, I was reminded of um, about facing your fears. When I was in Little League playing baseball, okay, my my parents divorced when I was real little. And, uh, and I played Little League, and my dad moved to Florida, and, and he... He came up to watch me, okay? We were playing. These kids were bigger than us. And, you know, I was nervous of this game. But to know that my dad was in the audience, proud of me, before I ever got up to bat, was proud and loved me for who I was because I was a son. No matter if I struck out every single time. You know what? I, I, I think I batted three for three that day. Yeah, it's just when you know that your father is in the stands right there with you cheering you on, go, go, 
I love you, son. I love you, daughter. It, the, the fears are just, they're gone. I think sometimes we get afraid that, uh, I hate to keep saying, I think sometimes we get afraid that we're not going to be able, because religion will teach us we've got to get a hold of God. And that's what faith is, is our grip on Him. And we feel like we're going to slip or we're going to fail or we're going to falter. But what holds us in is not my grip on Him. What faith is, is resting with his grip on me. My little boy would come up to me when he was really small, and he'd come stand up and he'd say, I want to hold you. It was absolutely impossible. He did not have the strength to hold on to me. What he was really saying is, I want to, I want to get in your embrace. And I'd pick him up and hold him, but it was not his grip on me that held him in that embrace. It was my grip on him. And when we understand that that's what faith really is, is a response to the faithfulness of God. So it's not my faith that holds on, and then if my faith slips and falters, I fall out. Faith is realizing that through redemption, he's got a grip on me and a hold on me through his life. And so my security is I can rest. My embrace on him is just a loving response, but it's not what holds me. So I think sometimes we get afraid our faith is going to fail or falter. But God didn't ask you to have great faith. He asked you to trust a God who is greatly faithful. Yes. Amen. Yes, yes. All right. Have any of you guys, James, Noel, or David, ever written a book or pamphlet with all the scriptures that the church has taught wrongly and explained them in detail. I'm sure there's some teaching out there. I have not. I have not. Please pray. I've been working on one for like 20 years, literally. And a lot of it's already done. So I would, I would appreciate your prayers. Finally get something out there because it'll be one book I can recommend that I believe everything in it. You know, most books you say, I believe almost everything. Cause, <laughs> you know, you, they're good books out there, but you always say, there's maybe a few things I would have said different, but it's a great book. This will be the first book I can say, I believe everything in this book. Yeah, I wrote it. No, I have, I have not. Yeah, but thanks for your prayers for that, because I really want to get that done. I really feel like I need to do it. I've been trying to get it done for years. And I think, I think it's a, a timing thing, because I'm seeing things now more clearly than I did even a year ago, and much more clearly than five years ago. Even though I've been sharing this for almost 30 years, since 1986. So it's, it, it's a timing thing. I think it's important. But now I just feel an urgency that, you know, get it done and get it out there. What do you think about the rapture? It's a wide open question right there. I think it's a good idea. It is a good idea. <laughs> Well, the, the word rapture, as everybody knows, is not in the Bible, the word rapture itself. But, but the truth is definitely there. Basically, the scripture teaches that at the end of days, and we can all, everybody has different views of when it happens. But basically, the, 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 the concept of rapture is that there will be a time at the very end of time, whether, you know, people have different views of when that is, but it's going to be basically at the end when Jesus returns. And there will be some people on earth who will not die a physical death at his second coming. And at that moment, there'll be those who are alive on earth that in a moment, Paul says in a twinkling of an eye, the body, the mortal body will, will, will change and become immortal and we shall disappear. He's we'll caught away, disappear. And we will actually be in the skies when he comes back from the other realm, when the other realm is opened up for the earth to see uh, with the other saints who've already gone on before us. And so that's, in essence, that's what the rapture is about. 
And it's, it's a true thing. It's, it's a reality that's going to happen. All right, the last question of the afternoon. To each speaker, how did you catch the message of grace? For me, you guys heard me, it was just a proper understanding of 1 John 1, 9. And it was just, like James said, the linchpin that removed all legalism. And and once you get rid of that, it's 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 on. And I think, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think... Us three right here are because of this man's teaching. I think because of James, really, in his boldness. You know, or James shared with Pastor. Pastor shared with me. It's just this awesome chain reaction of of the grace, the gospel of grace. It's too good to be quiet about once you once it gets a hold of you. Your first John one nine guy too, right? For me, have you ever been to a three D movie? Uh, I, I remember going to one at Cape Canaveral, you know. And whenever you get go to a three D movie, you take the glasses. Everybody does it to kind of flip. <laughs> you know, was it Steve, what it looks like without and with the glasses without? Well, it's like going to a three D movie without the glasses. Everything's kind of fuzzy. you can make out some stuff, but it's kind of fuzzy. It, you, you don't see, it's not clear. And it was like when when that linchpin was addressed uh, in, in James's teaching that I heard and the subsequent um, conversations and, and correspondence, what happened is the glasses came on. And then the Word of God ceased to be this fuzzy, distorted, um, abstract thing. I begin to see clearly, oh, now it makes sense. And and it just it's it's putting on the right glasses, the glasses of his finish. What you're seeing everything see everything comes to the cross. It comes to the cross and it either stops, it goes through unchanged, or it goes through changed. And so that's rightly dividing the word of truth. It's understanding what covenant this is coming from and that kind of thing. And it just began to make sense to me. And it just started me on a journey. I have to kind of process things. And, and, and it has to, I have to kind of prove it to myself. And, and so it just started me on that. That's the long, the long answer there. Sorry. For me, it would require a little bit of trauma. Um, I, yeah. um, I was, you know, if you're arrogant and you think you have all the answers... Uh, it really takes a, a long period of time when you, you have mistake after mistake or failure after failure and a success here and a failure there and so forth before. Um, but these guys, you know, they're good listeners when it comes to God. But me, I had to be knocked upside the head with a two-by-four, seems like. So it took a little bit of trauma. I don't want to go into all that. It wasn't like, I mean, it was... Anger and, you know, a lot of things that were going on in my life. But it took things being um, shaken up. And and uh, some years later, I was able to go back to people that were involved in that trauma and say, I thank God for what we went through. And it, it was just awesome. I have never, ever, you know, felt really bad. Almost even when I was going through some of my traumatic stuff. 
I, I didn't feel bad about it because we had always been taught, and I sort of believed that God will work through you know anything. I just didn't know how big that anything was going to be, or how how big the revelation would be in 1996, seven, somewhere around there. And um, so I, I say that to encourage you personally, and if you see friends and other people who get tossed. In, in a life, they lose a job or uh, there's a death or a divorce or there's, you know, any number of traumas in their life. And if you've been praying for them, just, I mean, don't rejoice that they're having a difficult time, but just keep your eyes open because God is always doing something. And that's the time when a lot of people are open to see things that they were very closed off. I was very closed off to this message for years and years. And uh, it took trauma. Well, for me, I already shared it just took it took a burnout for me, you know, just a uh, burning out where I couldn't feel like I couldn't go on. And that's what helped me see in my burnout that he and he was faithful to show himself to me when when I wasn't doing all the things right that that people said I had to do to be to be close to God and so forth. And that just blew my mind. And that's where it all opened up. I think the cool thing that sort of just listening to everybody and we could all go around the room and hear the same thing is it's just a unique journey. I think the short answer is is the Holy Spirit. But the uniqueness of how he does it is so multifaceted. I mean, for me, I had a I was very fortunate to have a genuine spiritual father in the Lord and a father in the faith. Uh, but it was through the word, through the scriptures. It was through hanging out with guys like this. It was through reading some book somebody passed across. There are just little ways it came or hearing somebody or meeting somebody. or come. So it's not like there's this one stream or avenue that the Lord uses. It's just a uniqueness. It could be trauma, burnout. It could be just maybe you've never, maybe it's all you've ever heard, but it's just that environment where the Holy Spirit sets it. And he's got ways and means to communicate to us beyond what we can imagine. And you might have been alone at your house. It might have been a minister that just, you know, I've heard so many testimonies about James you just wrecked a lot of people's the Lord did through you just wrecked a lot of people's religious little worlds and that's cool so however he chooses for you the neat thing is whoever wrote that the neat thing is yours is going to be unique if we handed you the microphone uh, and you got just as much to say as anybody sitting up here um, your journey is going to be a little bit different but it's going to be the same Holy Spirit speaking the same same thing in some different uh, way or way to communicate it to you That's it. We Oh, Mark's got a question. Here, let me go out here. Yeah, let's do it. We're down to five. I just got a couple of quick things. Um, there you go. What would you say to a believer who is uh, doubting their salvation, trying to grasp this message, but but doubting uh, whether they're actually a child of God or not, what would you say to uh, to someone like that? I got one more. I would. I, I try to not to ever t- be the Holy Spirit and tell somebody you're saved, um, because if the Holy Spirit hasn't testified that to them. You may be making a grave mistake to give them some false assurance. I think we, we always have to start with, what did you experience? Tell me about what you've experienced, and uh, what did you do? What did you, you know, what did you believe? Do you believe? And um, but 
once that's established that they uh, have become a believer and they clearly believe in Jesus, but they're just experiencing doubts, then the, it's kind of like the, um, uh, the fears. Uh, that's a fear. And the, the more you, the truth is what will correct all of that. And you speaking that truth to them is what's going to, as their mind, I mean, they have to accept that they're, you know, that, that they're going to believe that. So I think they're looking for a sign or a, you know, something fall out of heaven, boom, you're saved kind of thing. You know, yeah, the, the scripture says that we, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so as they begin to just focus on the truth of what they believe and make sure they're believing the right thing, you know, because um, Paul found some people in the book of Acts that were they were just believing in the in the baptism of John. They weren't even believing in the gospel. So he he told them the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And and so then they heard more perfectly the true gospel and they got born of the spirit. So sometimes people have heard just a, a vague thing about how, you know, God expects you to be good and do good things, go to church, join the church, whatever. And so they doubt their salvation, but they've never really heard a clear gospel. So first of all, like Noel said, ask them what they believe. What do you believe? Like act, like Paul acts, Paul asked the uh, disciples of John, you know, and all they knew was, you know, repent. But they didn't know the gospel. Okay, that's one one thing you could do. And then and then encourage them to you know, let the spirit bear witness with your spirit. If you're a believer, that the spirit will confirm that you are a child of God. And um, oh, I had another thought. I was going to say that. Um, just slipped my mind about. Confidence in a believer. Ah, maybe it'll, maybe it'll come back to me. Yeah, I just totally there was, some, there was something else that uh, came to mind that the person is doubting. Not coming back. Maybe it'll come back. In I, I got one more question. If you want to think about it during the meantime, uh, <laughs> let's say uh, we have a believer, and this is a true story, uh, and he was a pastor, a very famous pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. He, i tell you enough information to probably figure out who it is. But anyway, and so he fell away and fell into sin. And um, from your message, did, did God allow that? Did he do anything? The Holy Spirit's not convicting him of his sin, you're saying. So what, what happens when that, what happens there? Is there a trial? Is there a, does God do nothing? Yeah, yeah, sins, un, unrepentant sin, even, um, you know, backsliding, kind of thing. What 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 happens then? Well, um, I think that's a really good question, and I, I and I think it brings brings some clarity because it's it's making clear also what we're uh, and what's been communicated, but what people hear. Sometimes what we say and what people hear uh, are different. When we say. Uh, well, you don't have to confess your sins to be forgiven. Some people say, oh, so I can do anything I want to. Well, that's not really what's being said, but how do you clarify that? And what you're talking about is, well, there's not a conviction on sin, but there is a conviction or a convincing of the Holy Spirit, and it is a conviction of righteousness. The Lord uh, has the Spirit. The Spirit is within us to convict and to convince us of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us, the, the riches of the mystery. 
that's how this is lived out by a life. For an individual like that, I mean, I, some of those questions like, did God allow it? And, and to an extent, God will allow because He's given us the ability to make free choice. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is there to convict and to convince us of who we are in Christ. So if we start to go down a path or an avenue of thought, because that's ultimately what's going to lead to the actions, that I believe if we're attentive, the Holy Spirit is convicting and convincing us of the truth of the gospel so that we would choose Christ to let his life live. Because in essence, what we're talking about for whoever this individual is or any of them is there's some manifestation of flesh. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, we're showing up. Sometimes it makes national news. Sometimes nobody ever knows. But nonetheless, if it's to miss the mark of our nature. So what was Paul's solution for that when he said, here's all of the works of the flesh, and he laid them out there? Paul was not, I believe, giving us a laundry list as the church is taking it to say, here's all the stuff you guys go clean up out of your life. He was holding a thermometer out the door, if you will, and saying, if you see this stuff, this is the climate of the flesh. But here's what the Spirit looks like. So now, walk in the Spirit. And I think that's the discussion we need to begin to have and understanding and realization and revelation of what it is to walk in the Spirit. Because if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So your focus is never, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. But our focus is, Lord, let me yield to the Spirit of the light of, of, of Christ in me, the law of the Spirit of life. And that if I walk in the Spirit, then all of those things or those mark missings will not happen. And I believe the Holy Spirit is always, whether we're attentive or hearing, always convincing me of that walk in the Spirit in our nature, if that makes sense. To, to, and so that will deal with the sin. But if there's an issue of sin, if we shut all the lights off in here, I'll say this and then shut up. If we shut all the lights off in here, if it was dark outside, it would be dark. Now, all the darkness is, is an, obviously an absence of light. We could scream at the darkness. We could get bags and bag it up and say, if we can get all the darkness out of here, it'll be great. The darkness is here because the lights got turned off. If we're ever dealing with an issue of a manifestation of sin in our life, what we're actually dealing with is a lack of a manifestation of righteousness, which is what the Holy Spirit is here to convince us of. So that's why the Holy Spirit's not convicting us of sin, because it's not our nature. We can't be convicted of that. But if he can convince us of righteousness, which is the mark, if we let righteousness live, then we're not missing the mark because the mark is being expressed. So we don't have to have the focus on sin, but there still is the focus on Christ and on righteousness. Awesome. I remember what I was trying to remember. Yes. And then I want to share a few thoughts on this, too. But the, for the previous question, uh, Jesus told us in the Gospel of John that you have the authority as a believer to tell a person that if they say they believe in Jesus, that their sins are forgiven. Remember that verse? He says, to whomsoever you, whoever believes on me, you, I give you the authority from heaven to say as a son of God, but the authority of heaven to tell someone their sins are forgiven if they put their faith in Jesus. So sometimes a person who's doubting their salvation needs to have the body of Christ speak with the authority of heaven and tell them because Jesus commissioned us to tell people if their faith is in Jesus, declare to them that your sins are forgiven. It's powerful. And that sometimes that's what a believer needs to hear. And that maybe because the church is not as bold to say that because they have so much legalism. They don't want to be too bold and let somebody be too free, you know. But that's what we need is a bold proclamation 
that if they're, faith, if they're saying they believe in Jesus, you speak with all the authority of heaven, you can say your sins are forgiven. And that may be that might help release some people. But then real quickly on, on the issue of a, a brother in sin or whatever, um, there are consequences for walking after the flesh. You know, there are consequences for the consequences, you know, bad decisions sometimes end up in bad results. And there's, there's going to be consequences that happen in this world. But like I was texting Wes the other day, it's like it's almost like that GPS lady, you know, who says, uh, you know, routing, routing. And so you take the route on the GPS and you you miss the turn. And then she goes rerouting, go down here, make a U-turn, come back around. And then you miss a turn. And she goes rerouting. It's almost like that God God is he takes all our mistakes, all our sins, all our failures, this pastor who messed up and he works it together for good. He reroutes everything. He can take a he can take a mess and make it awesome. You know, he is he's a master of taking our messes, our bad decisions, our mistakes and make it even a better thing where we all like Noel says, I wouldn't change it for anything. That what we went through. It was like amazing. That's God. He takes messes and makes them into awesome things. And so, yeah, there's some consequences, obviously, sometimes in a fallen world. Paul, I mean, Peter said, don't suffer as an evildoer, as a as a thief or a meddler. In other words, if you're going to steal from 7-Eleven, you may go to jail. Peter says, don't suffer as a like an evildoer that's in the world because you may end up suffering in jail because you stole from 7-Eleven. So that, yeah, that can happen. The law is here for the unrighteous. And if you step over into their world and break that law, you, you're going to have you're going to get in their criminal justice system with a place you shouldn't be. You know, and God doesn't want you there. But having made that bad decision, God never forsakes us. He takes that and makes it something awesome and works everything out together for good to where we believe like, wow, he must have planned it this way because this this has turned out really good because that's how awesome he is and working things out. Also want to say this briefly, that we we make way too much of sin, way too much of sin. We put a huge Jesus. They called a woman in the very act of adultery. In the very act of adultery, threw her before his feet, and all he did was turn to the others and not her, and say, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And I believe the reason why he didn't, I believe the reason he was writing on the ground is, I don't think he was writing anything. Everybody has these theories. He's writing the Ten Commandments. He's writing, I, don't think he's, I think he's doodling. I think he's just, you know what he's doing, I believe? He's just not Wanting to make eye contact with the woman in the context of condemnation. He does not want to look at her yet. He is writing on the ground. He stands up and makes eye contact with all the accusers and says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he goes back down, still not making eye contact with her. And then one by one, beginning with the oldest first, because they know how many sins they've committed. The young ones were ready to throw a stone. And finally, the young ones said, oh, God, I'm not going to be the only one. So they leave. And so then Jesus looks up. No one's around. Then he makes eye contact with her. He says, where are your accusers, woman? Neither do I. And I I have the only I'm the only one with the right to throw a stone. He's the only one that had the right to throw a stone without sin. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I mean, wait, wait, wait. You can't just do that. You can't just say go and sin no more. What about probation? What about some kind of accountability? What about consequences? What about what about we make way too much of sin? 
He has taken away the sting of sin. He has taken away the condemnation of sin. These pastors that fall and these churches that kick them out, it's a disgrace. It's Amen. a disgrace. Amen. Yeah, they need to they need to reaffirm these pastors. They need to preach in the same pulpit and preach more, better than ever, because it's a disgrace how so many churches teach treat leaders who fall, and that's how the, the enemy's laughing at us because all they have to do is hit the leader, and we just we just kill our our brother and sister. But the very thing we need to see just how powerful God's grace is. Yeah. Peter denied he even knew Jesus. He denied him at the very moment Jesus needed him. Jesus ends up after the resurrection making him breakfast on the beach. He says, Peter, you're going to be my spokesman at Pentecost.